So uh, imagine if you had just randomly had to stand up and give a speech to a group of people about something that you weren't very good at. Like, like picture it, like what, what would that thing be? Like what, what would be the thing that you would have to like panic a little bit? Like, cause we all have, I think we all have the thing, like we have one thing that if you, if somebody's like, hey, get up and talk for 30 minutes about this thing, you're like, I got it. And you know, it's like Mario Brothers or, you know, Dune or, you know, it's Star Wars or whatever. Like you have all kinds of things that everybody's, it's different for everybody. But imagine it was something that you're not very good at. And maybe, maybe you don't really know how to cook, but somebody was like, hey, I need you to go in there and teach these 40 people in 30 minutes, like give them a cooking class. Or, or like if somebody came to me and was like, I need you to show people how to change the oil in their car. I would be like, all right, so step one, everybody take out your phone. All right, now open Google. Now search for Jiffy Lube near me. Like that, that would be the only way I could help you know how to change the oil in your car. Or, or like somewhere written, like in, it, it's not written in the, it's sort of an unspoken rule that pastors are supposed to be like super into golf. And I'm like the exception because I can't stand golf. It like moves too slow. I'm bored after about two holes. I'm like, can we go do something else? That's why I'm not into fishing. And so like, I, I just get bored really, really easily. Give me something like I, I'm way too ADD. But, but if somebody like told me that I had to like go give a speech about golf, I mean, I, I've swung a golf club. I've hit a couple of decent shots in my life. Like, but I don't know. I'm not very good at it. I don't know how to help people actually be good at it. And, and, and honestly, the reason I bring that up is that anytime we talk about money around here, that's kind of how I feel is that somebody's like, hey, go give a speech about something that you're not very good at. Because like, honestly, like my financial background and my expertise is way more of a cautionary tale of what not to do than it is any sort of an example of what actually to do. And, but to be honest, that's kind of the good news of this series because these conversations are not really based on how smart I am or how wise I am or how witty I am when it comes to money. They're not based on, you know, like what I know or what I can tell you about how to manage money or how to approach it in your family or how not to spoil your kids. No, it's actually based on what God says. It's based on on his wisdom and what he says about how we are to approach it and its proper place in our lives and in our families. But what I can tell you is that in the last 36 years of my life of working and earning money, I've gone from like being a complete and total disaster with money to eh, okay at it. And not great, but, but okay. And, and anything positive that I could share today or through this series from the things that we've done and we've learned about managing money and learned about ourselves and our family as a husband and my wife and, and us as parents, it's from slowly actually learning to trust God and do things his way. And so if you're wondering like what the hidden agenda or the ulterior motive is for a church or for our church might be in doing a series like it, this, that's it. That the whole agenda is to try to get you to trust God a little bit more than you currently do and to take a step towards actually doing things his way. I'm not naive enough to think that all of us are going to go rushing down that path and just go embrace it out of, you know, like right off the bat. But we do want you to take a step towards trusting God and trying to live by his wisdom. Now, there is a built-in problem. So I've been a pastor for 30 years. I've and since I've been a pastor, like when people come and talk to me and they want to talk about their lives, when they need help, when there's something that they want to share that's painful or dark or that they're ashamed of or that they haven't really told anybody about before, which happens way more than you think, almost always 
what they tell me has something to do with either sex or money. It either is directly or indirectly related to one or the other. Now, here's what, what, what always kind of blows me away about that, is that those two areas are the two areas where what God says to us is most ignored by most of us. Sex and money are the two areas in the New Testament where what Jesus and his disciples taught, where people, where most of us are most likely to go, yeah, that sounds really cool, but no thanks. I'll try to figure it out on my own. Which, which those two things together actually means a couple of things. It means that this conversation is both incredibly important for us because there's so much potential for us to cause ourselves so much heartache and wreck our families. But it also means that as we're talking about it, that there's something inside of us that's going to want to stiff arm it and go, yeah, I'll, I'll just figure it out. But whether or not you're a church person or not, I think most of us would admit that we don't want to live in a world full of materialistic, selfish, self-centered people. We certainly don't want to raise spoiled, materialistic, self-centered kids, right? And nobody wants to live in that world that's full of those kinds of people. The problem is, have you ever noticed how we have different definitions of what those things look like when it comes to us and our families and our kids versus how we see them when it comes to other people and their families and their kids? Like, has this ever happened to you? Like, where you saw something that somebody else was doing with their money, something they bought, some way that they were spending money, and it just felt to you like it was just kind of over the top. It was extravagant. It was just too much. It was unnecessary, right? And you were appalled, or at least you acted like you were. Like, can you believe that those people, I can't even, how could they afford that? Why would they? I, that just feels very irresponsible. Look, look at their children. Why would they? You know, like we have those converse, kinds of conversations, right? Or, or like, have you ever been to a kid's birthday party that was like that, where you're just like, oh my gosh, how much money? was this right and there's ponies and like buffet tables and a clown and a magician and chocolate fountains and a giant cake and like a mariachi band for some reason in the corner and like like and they're just like thanks for celebrating his two and a half year birthday and you're just like it's not even his real birthday what's going on right and they're like here's a bunny as a party favor and you're just like well, i don't want it's like a 15 year commitment i don't want a bunny you know and maybe the worst part of like those kinds of moments is that your kids see it, right? Because then all of a sudden it opens up all these categories of possibilities in their minds of what, what their birthday party could be like. And you're just like, sorry, kid, like that party set you up for a lifetime of disappointment. Because the but the truth is, even when we can't compete, we feel the pressure to. And so later, when we're doing a little better, when we're making a little more, we do the same thing, or sometimes we do more. And it actually obviously extends way beyond birthday parties, right? I mean, like my kid can't be the only kid who, who, like, who, who don't got that drip with all the right brands and the tennis shoes and, you know, look through the right shirts and jackets and stuff. You know, like we, we can't have our kid or our, my kid can't be the only kid who doesn't have that video game console or go to that elite private school or have a brand new dirt bike or play travel ball like all the other kids. Like my kid, my kid can't be the only kid not doing those things. And look, if we're honest, like this is all money is not rational. We don't, we're not rational beings when it comes to money. We're very emotional, so it's very emotionally complicated for us. And the truth is like the reality is life is very hard. And our perception is that it's getting harder, right? And so if you're a parent, 
You have this natural instinct to try to shield your kids from as much of that as you can. And one of the ways that we do that is just by giving them stuff. Like life is hard, so we just wanna, we just wanna make, you, make it easier, make it funner, make it better. And then on top of that, like watching our kids go without reminds us of all the things that we went without when we were kids. Right? And the truth is like, look at the statistics, like most parents tend to spoil their kids in whatever area was lacking for them growing up, <clears throat> even if their kids don't want it. And so we, cons- we convince ourselves that like, if our kids have more than we had, they'll have it better than we did. We do that, right? The problem is it often doesn't work out like that. And when it doesn't, we can't figure out like what happened and what went wrong and why didn't this work? Because that's the thing that you and I both know but we still pretend like it's true, is that more does not equal better. It just doesn't. We, we act like it does. We act like if we just bought more, if we had more, if we gave more, if there was just more stuff, more experiences, more, like if it was just more, 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 more is better. But it, it doesn't always, it, it rarely ever works out like that. In fact, we can all think of people in situations where more not only didn't make it better, it, it made it worse where it didn't make those people better, it made them worse. Like, I liked you better when you didn't have any money. Now you're kind of a jerk. So one of the most famous warnings about all this stuff was written in a letter from a guy named Paul to a young pastor named Timothy, and he wrote these words in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. He said, people who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. People who long to be rich. Well, I mean, that's the good news for us. That's none of us. Verse 10, for the love of money, you've probably heard this, this is one of the most famous verses in the Bible. Even if people don't know where it is or the context in which it was said, it gets said all the time. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people, some people, not us, Some people craving money have wandered away from the true faith and have pierced themselves with many sorrows. Now, that is actually a pretty severe warning, right? That all sounds pretty serious. It's very sobering, especially if it's true. But this is where things get really tricky for us. Because I don't know about you, but I don't really feel like a lot of that language describes me. I mean, people who long to be rich, the love of money, people who crave money, that's not me, that's not us. We're not rich. That's a description of somebody who's greedy. And we, in our minds, like, we go, yeah, of course, greed is bad. But that's not my struggle. That's somebody else. In our heads, greed is like Ebenezer Scrooge, right? Some miserly old guy in a closet by himself counting his gold coins, and he never got married, and he never had kids, and his whole life was spent obsessing over what he has to the point where he's never actually even able to enjoy it, and he didn't have anybody else around. See, all of us relegate greed to somebody we don't know and somebody we'll never be. And so, whoo, we dodge those bullets. But you know, who, you know who has an issue with greed? Everybody. All of us. Every single one of us. I actually think greed is like bad breath. You don't know you got it. You think you're fine. You don't know that your breath stank. Right, but everybody else knows, right? That's the way greed is in our lives. We don't know that it's taking over our life. Everybody can see it from the outside, but we don't know. 
So I actually want to give you, a, a, I think, what is a, a more helpful definition of greed. Because like I said, I think it hits closer to home for most of us than we'd care to admit. So here's, here's how we're going to define greed. Greed is the assumption that it's all for my consumption. Greed is the assumption that I live with that it's all for my consumption. It's simply that assumption that if I have it, it's for me. If it was placed in my hand, if it shows up in my bank account, if it's part of my paycheck, if it shows up in my 401k, if I win the lottery, obviously that's God's will, and it's all for me. It's the assumption that all of it, it's all for my consumption. And since there's this ever-expanding, never-ending list of things that I want to have and things I want to eat and things I want to drink and things I want to see and do and experience, I got to grab all I can and keep all that I have so that I can buy and eat and drink and see and do and experience as many of those things as I can. And if I choose out of the big-hearted compassion that bubbles up inside of me sometimes to give what's so clearly designed for me to someone else, I really hope that God is watching, so I'm going to give it real nice and slow in case he gets distracted. Did you see that, God? I gave some away. Right? It's the assumption that it's all for my consumption. No, no wonder why in our lives there's this overwhelming pull in our culture towards materialism. Because we live in a consumer culture. In fact, our whole, like, our whole market, our whole economy is called a consumer economy. Because we don't make stuff anymore. We just consume stuff. We're all just consumers. And so, of course, we're being pulled towards materialism. Of course, we're being pulled towards the things we can buy and eat and taste and see. Of course, we're being pulled to that place where we become people who, and we raise kids who'd rather buy something than be together, or we'd rather buy something than build a relationship or a connection. We'd rather buy something than become someone better. And it happens to us really without us even really noticing or realizing it because it's just, we're just swimming in it all day long. It's just what we know. There's a guy named William Damon and he is a um, Stanford professor. He's been at Stanford for many years and he's considered uh, across the country as being one of the world's foremost experts on adolescence and human development. And he made this observation recently. He said, most children today have lives and privileges that for most of human history were reserved for royalty. They were reserved for the most privileged, wealthy people on the planet. And see, that is why. And, that, and I think that that rings true. I don't know if that rings true for you, but it rings true in my life. And, and that's why this is so hard for us. That's why it's so hard for us to really admit, even though we get in our heads, but really live out that more doesn't equal better. Now, if that's what greed is, all of a sudden, I maybe need to sit up and pay attention to some of this conversation. Because maybe it's me who ends up trapped by foolish desires and plunged into ruin. Maybe it's my kids who end up spoiled and entitled and wander away from a life of meaning and purpose and faith. Maybe it's me and my family who end up piercing themselves with many sorrows. So our, our youngest son, his name is Kelton, and he's almost nine. He turns nine in like two weeks. 
and he can't wait. And he is an amazing kid, love him to death. And he is my kid, and so he loves to eat, and he really, really, really loves donut holes. And what's funny about Kelton is Kelton has never known church. He's never known a Sunday at church without donut holes uh, because he's grown up in churches that we've pastored, and we always have coffee and donut holes at all of our churches. So to him, donut holes and Jesus go together like macaroni and cheese, right? Like this is what we go to a church sometimes where, we're, you know, we're visiting or I'm guest speaking somewhere. And first thing he looks at, walks in, they don't have, he comes out, reports, they don't have donut holes. And he's just got an attitude about it. Like, yeah, I know. Like, I, okay, <laughs> not everybody does that. He's also never known any other kind of church other than a mobile church because we've started multiple churches and, uh, and every one of those churches has, has been meeting in a rented facility. And so my kids are always here helping set up in the mornings and helping tear down after church. And when Kelton was four years old, we were in Riverside and every Sunday he'd sneak off while we were all supposed to be setting up. He would sneak off to where the volunteers were putting all the donut holes in the cups and, and putting them out for people. And he'd just help himself. He would have a feast. And because he was adorable, and because he was the pastor's kid, nobody would tell him no. And so no matter what we told him about what he could have or could not have or how many he could enjoy, he would eventually find somebody that he could manipulate and give them the little four-year-old puppy dog eyes into giving him another cup or two of donut holes. And so after battling with him about it for weeks, one Sunday, he disappears. I go and find him, and I walk up, and he like pushes everything behind him. He's got like the sugar from the donut hose all over his face. And he's got, I said, show me your hands. And he goes like this. He's got a donut hole in each hand. I look behind him. There's a cup right behind him. And there's three empty cups kind of laying around him, right? And, and he has this other kid that he's been trying to talk out of. That kid's donut holes, right? It was unbelievable. I, I didn't know if I should be mad or if I should like high five him or both. You know, like, this is amazing. I can tell you who wasn't happy, his mother. Hansi was not feeling proud at all. If you've ever met my wife, like, you know, she wasn't having any of that. So she came up with a great solution. The next Sunday before church, she took a green marker and in giant letters wrote no food on his forehead. There it is. There is Kelton in green marker with no underlined twice, no food. That infamous donut hole Sunday, it didn't matter to Kelton that he already had more than he should have or that he was already feeling sick to his stomach. All he knew is that he just wanted more. He had pierced himself with many donut hole sorrows. And if you have kids, like you know what that's like, you've probably experienced that, but here's the deal. That's not just a kid with donut holes, that's us. That's the story of humanity, right? Only it's not a tummy ache that's on the line, it's like heartbreak and devastation, right? It's, it's whether or not we shipwreck our lives with the relentless pursuit of more because it never ends. And it's unintentional, but we're plunged into ruin and our soul and our relationships and our children are pierced with many sorrows. And our solution to those sorrows is to throw more money at it. So how do we not end up there? Are we just not supposed to like give ourselves and our kids a good life? Well, I, I think like, in the scripture we read in 1 Timothy chapter 6, a few verses later, it kind of gets into that. He says this. 
He says, teach those who are rich in this world, which, by the way, that's us. When you read the New Testament, any scripture that's written to or about rich people, it's written about us. So you can just insert yourself in there. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be, tr- not to be proud, okay, that makes sense, and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Don't we know it? Don't we know it? He says their trust should be in God, but get this, God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. See, God actually wants you to enjoy your life. It's just a matter of where that joy is found and what that looks like. In fact, Paul tells us that God gives us all we need for our enjoyment. And so it's really interesting to me that his blessing in this conversation about him giving us all we need for our enjoyment comes with a warning with it, which feels kind of confusing. But he warns us because he knows how we are. See, you and I have to be careful when you get constants in your life. When, when there's, some, there, there's something in the human nature, there's something in human wiring that we have a tendency to take things that are constant in our life for granted. When something is consistent, when it's all we've ever known, we take it for granted. And eventually, we start thinking that we're entitled to it. So my two older kids, I have a, a son who's turning 23 and a daughter who's turning 21 this week. And, and when they were very little, um, they were some of the very first grandkids on my wife's side, and so her parents, like to say they spoiled, it was just so stupid. And so, and it wasn't just like on birthdays and, and, and holidays and that kind of stuff. It was every time we saw them, they would bring a carload of stuff. They would bring them gifts. It did not take very long before our kids started walking up to see their grandparents and going, what did you bring me? What did you buy me? What did you, where is it? One time they showed up without gifts and our kids were like, "Ah," you know, they didn't even care that their grandparents were there. See, they would push right past the giver and fixate on the gift. The consistent gift giving from my in-laws produced in my kids a sense of entitlement. Where's the gift? How dare you come and visit me without buying me something? Right? And that happens to all of us. We're not even aware of all the things we take for granted. Like, like for instance, we live, we live somewhere where the sun comes up every single day. Most days, I don't think to thank God that, hey, thank God that the sun came up today. But if you were to move to Utkiagvik, Alaska, where the sun sets in mid-November and doesn't reappear until the end of January, and where during that 60 to 65 days of darkness it gets down to 30 and 40 degrees below zero, you'd probably feel different when the sun started coming back up in February. See, when something is consistent, we just take it for granted. Recently, I I read um, a guy named Dr. Robert Lupton. He wrote a book called Toxic Charity. He explains this dynamic this way. He says, if you give somebody something one time, it will elicit appreciation. If you give them something twice, it moves from appreciation to anticipation. When you give it to them a third time, now you've created an expectation. And by the time you give them something that fourth time, you have created a sense of entitlement. They'll think that they deserve it. Isn't that 
Isn't that fascinating? Right? And is there anything uglier in somebody than somebody who's entitled? I mean, just talking about it. If you're like me, you can, you can think of somebody right now that's entitled. You're maybe even making a list of people who need to hear some of this. You're going to send them the podcast later. You're going to text them some of the notes you took. You're going to take a picture of the screen and be like this, right? Because we hate entitlement. But before we like start looking around at the people around you, can I ask you to do like a healthy thing and just kind of check, check yourself first? Is it possible? Is this true of you? Is this true of me? And, and here's a little test. You can tell the things that you feel entitled to by what you complain about. You want to know what you think you deserve and what you're entitled to? Look at the stuff you complain about. And listen, this is not like a us problem. It's not an American. This is, this is a human problem. The fact that there's so much about this stuff in the New Testament tells us that it's a human problem. We just, I think, actually, today in our culture, are far more susceptible because of the world in which we live. So the question is, like, what do we do about any of this stuff? Well, I want, I want to take you to a place in the Scripture that wasn't necessarily written specifically about all this, but I actually think it gives a pretty good roadmap for us not getting trapped in this greed, materialistic, more is better, like all that stuff. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. This is what it says. It says, finally, dear brothers and sisters, we urge you in the name of the Lord Jesus to live in a way that pleases God as we've taught you. You live this way already and we encourage you to do so even more. So this is where he, there's like the, this is the beginning of the end of this letter that he's writing. We're going to get to the part that applies to us in just a second. But I, I read that because I want you to notice the, the context of the language. He's not, you stupid losers, you guys are so greedy, and you got to get your act together. No, it's none of that. It's not angry, it's not disgusted, it's relationship. It's like, hey, brothers and sisters, like, let me come alongside of you and actually help you because I, I, don't want you to, I don't want you to be pierced with many sorrows, right? And he says, so live in a way that pleases God. And I think that's such a great place for us to start how, like, figuring out how do we not fall into this trap. Well, what is it that pleases God? Not, not what pleases us, not what pleases our kids. How do we live in a way that pleases God? Okay, so what, what does he mean by that? Well, in the next several verses, he begins to like give some very specific and sort of really practical examples of what he's talking about. And he ends up talking about self-control, and he talks about sexuality and relationships. He talks about loving and caring for other people. And then he lays on us one of the most underwhelming pieces of scriptural instruction that doesn't sound spiritual. It doesn't sound helpful. It just sounds like, like just some, you know, something your grandpa would tell you. And it gets almost no pub in church. So he's talking about living in a way that pleases God, remember? And this is what he says in verses 11 and 12. He says, make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands just as we instructed you. Then people who are not believers, so if you're wondering who he's talking to, if you're a Jesus follower, he's talking to you and me. Then people who are not believers, they're not Jesus followers, will respect the way that you live, and you'll not need to depend on anybody else. So there it is. That's it. Like That's his big plan. And so he's going like, hey, do you want a goal? You want something to aim your life at? You want, to spit, you want something, you, you want to know what the target is that you should be chasing after? Here it is. 
This is what it looks like to live in a way that pleases God. This is what it looks like to break free from the pattern of this world. This is what it looks like to cultivate trust for God and not in money. This is what it looks like to combat greed and entitlement and materialism. This is what it looks like to unspoil yourself and your kids. Make this your goal. And he says, lead a quiet life, which is kind of the opposite of the way everything in our world works. Right? We live in a culture where we talk about everything, we take pictures of everything we do, we brag about everything we do, we're constantly wrapped up in everything that's going on out there, but he goes, hey, hey, listen, focus on your own life. Don't be so concerned with what other people think, other people are doing, other people say about you. See, your kids don't wake up one day and then boom, they're spoiled. No, it happens gradually over time. And so there's this sense of he's going, look, it starts with you and me. If you're a parent, I would just say, like, be the person that you want your kid to be. Because if, it if it's not in you, it ain't going to be in them. If you're not demonstrably generous in front of them, they will not be generous. If you're not talking through how you trust God in your life in any area, they're going to find it really hard to figure out how to trust God in their life. And so he's going, you need to be known more by what you do than what you say. Do what's important to you without like, making a huge deal out of it. Be confident and content with who you are, with how God made you, with what he's given you. So he says, lead a quiet life. And the second thing he says is, mind your own business. So far, he's two for two on things that are the opposite of what we want to do in our culture, right? The way that things are. Because we want to know everybody's business. What, do you, what did you do? What are you wearing? Where did you go on vacation? I, I was thinking about it this week, and I, maybe it's just me, but sometimes I wonder what I would own or have if I didn't know what everybody else has. I, I wonder how much influence what you have has on what I have. I, I also wonder like, what I would want if I didn't already know what you have. I wonder how much of my money I would have saved if I didn't know what you spent your money on. And sometimes I get really deep and I wonder how much more money would I have given away to people who have less than me if I didn't know what the people who have more than I have had. God says, Mind your own business. <laughs> what great advice. Stop comparing your life to everyone else's. Spend time with people who reinforce who you want to be. Set limits on like, the influences in your life, the people and the things that cause you to be pulled away from how you want to live your life and parent your kids and raise your family. Who cares what they have? Who cares what they're into? Who cares where they went? What has God gifted you with? What has God placed in your hands? What has he called you to do? And Paul's going, do that, live that, enjoy that, use that. Let that be your life. See, the problem I have is that I know too much, and I know, what I know too much about is about what you have that I don't have. <laughs> 
And that information makes me dangerously discontent. And and it's at the heart of so many of the money problems that I've experienced in my life. Because that, that information breathes life into all the greediness and materialism that's dying a slow, hard death in my soul. But maybe it's just me. The truth is that I don't need to be worried about you. I have plenty of my own business that needs minding. And then he says this. He says, work with your hands. And this is, we talked about the whole consumption thing and greed and consumer. And this is the opposite of that, right? This is about contribution. This is about what is it that your life is creating? And there's part of this that's just about work, right? And if you're like, I would say over 50, this is like, works your side of the street, right? Because you just want to tell the young people, nobody owes you anything. We don't deserve anything. Stop complaining and get to work, right? But the truth is for all of us, all the best parts of life, whether it's your relationships, your family, your career, your physical health, your, your mental health, all of that takes work. Everything worthwhile is uphill from where you are. And we don't want to hear that. Because we want it to be downhill. We, wanna, we, we got a head of steam. We want to go that direction. But for your life to get better, for your marriage to get better, for your finances to get better, for your kids to get better, it's uphill from where you are, not downhill. And so some of it's just about the work that it takes. But there's this other part that I think that he's driving at is that this idea that we're connected to one another. Like we're, we're all about me and mine. We say that in our culture. I don't care what you're going to get, but I'm going to get mine, Right? But, but he's, he's like putting out, like, that's not even a thing, right? He's going, like, your work and your life isn't supposed to just benefit you. It, it's not just so that you can build a better life for yourself. It's so that together we can build a better community and a better world. And so there's this sense of finding the sweet spot between providing for yourself and your family and pitching in to help other people, where your life is balanced by both. And he's like, if one starts getting too heavy, you're out of balance. Which is why at the end he says, because then nobody will need to take care of you, right? Because he's not going like, don't give yourself into poverty. But there's a balance. If those things aren't balanced in your life, you gotta move towards how are you working to help other people? And at the end, he says, when we do all these things, right, when we lead a quiet life, when we mind our own business, we work with our hands, he says, then people who are not believers will respect you. What is it that they'll notice about you? What is it that will stand out about you? What will they respect about you? Is it how much scripture you know, how spiritual we are, about how loudly we complained about Taylor Swift at the Super Bowl? Is it sharing the latest memes and shouting down people we disagree with? No, it's because of the way we live. It's because of the way we work. It's because of the way we raise our kids. It's because of the way we love and we give. Our life will stand out in a way that's obvious because our life is so not driven by the things that everybody else's life is driven, greed and materialism and comparison. That somehow in the middle of this crazy consumer economy and world, we've found a way to be content and peaceful 
and generous. And so we're not grabbing and clutching and hoarding, but we're living open-hearted and open-handed. We're leading a quiet life, minding our own business, working with our hands, taking care of our kids. That is way easier said than done. And so I, I wanted to end this morning this way. If, um, if we were to follow you around in your life and just look at your habits and look at your, your low moments when you're sitting on the ground full of donut holes with donut holes in your hand and donut hole cups all around, only it's your thing, it's not donut holes. What would we take a green marker and write on your forehead? No workaholism. No, what, what would it be, right? No more, insert the thing you spend too much money on. What, what, what would we write on your forehead to go like, look, everybody, this guy's got a problem. Give him a break. Don't tempt him. Don't take him down that path. The beautiful reality is that the freedom that we long for, the life that we long for, when it comes to being able to live a life that's open-hearted, open-handed, to raise kids that are not spoiled, that they're the opposite of spoiled, they're kind, generous, that that begins with God writing his name on our hearts. Thank God nobody's writing on my forehead with a marker. <laughs> Would you pray with me? Let's pray together.